Good afternoon and welcome to the Legal Legal Show. This is your host, Tony Dodds. I'm an attorney here in Lakeland. The number to call in is 863-682-1430. That's 863-682-1430. To contact me at my office, the number is 863-688-2389. That's 863-688-2389. To get to my office, it is located at 904 South Missouri Avenue in Lakeland. That's directly behind the Old Southside Dry Cleaners. That is located on South Florida Avenue. Today, I thought we would touch on something that is very relevant to right now, and that is there are provisions or a statute, I should say, that has uh, the bill has been signed off on. It's, it's waiting for Governor DeSantis to finish his review and determine whether he's going to sign it or veto it, and that involves uh, new alimony and time-sharing provisions uh, under Section 61 of the Florida Statutes. And I, I know y'all have told, heard me talk before quite a bit about alimony on like one show and then uh, pr- parenting and timesharing on another. This show is going to be dedicated more to the proposed changes in the laws uh, that would affect not only stuff to be filed in the future, but stuff that's pending now. And I say stuff, litigation that's pending. Um, let's just kind of start to begin with with the alimony because it's the one that's got a lot of changes within it uh we're talking about uh, by definition in part of this active gross income and that includes salary wages bonuses commissions allowances overtime tips and other similar payments uh minus ordinary and necessary expenses when we're talking about other similar payments uh, that can include like a, a worker gets paid a per diem or allowances to go do a job out of county. And a lot of times those things are fixed amounts that they get paid. Well, they may not use all of that fixed amount they get paid. So the courts in determining some of these alimony or income issues between the parties can look at the amounts of money they're getting paid by their employer to go do an out-of-town job and then it, it gets subtracted back out what their real expenses were. So say they're getting paid, and I'm just using fictional numbers here, and in, in today's gas and economy, it's real fiction what I'm getting ready to talk about, but I'm, I'm kind of doing it to give a point. Say an employer pays an employee an additional $200 per day to go work a job that's going to be out of county that they have to stay overnight. And we're only going to talk about one day just to give you the kind of the overall on this. And the employee only spends 150 of the $200 that they've been allocated. And when I say spend, I don't mean going buying candy at Walmart or something like that. I'm talking about staying at a motel or a hotel and any food and gas that they may have paid for of their own. Now, if the gas was paid for by the company, that doesn't count. But we're talking about either mileages or we're talking about actual expense on something like that, the net result is that employee is still made $50 more than their normal wages for that day. That will be considered to be active gross income. And quite frankly, most of the courts have already been doing something like that uh, because they saw that as additional income being paid over and above the actual expenses of the employee. Uh, income is also going to include and does include uh, defined trust distributions, meaning if you're getting money out of a trust, uh, 
on a regular basis. That's income. Whether you like it or not, it's still income for purposes of the court in looking and evaluating at whether or not one party should be awarded alimony or not. Uh, let's kind of dive into alimony, which is uh, dealt with under Section 61.08 of the Florida Statutes. You have heard me talk about on this show before the concept or the idea of permanent alimony. It's where one party receives alimony for the rest of their life uh, or the payee, excuse me, payor's life. And what that really means is, is because of the duration of the marriage, generally speaking, now sometimes there's other issues that can cause it to be triggered, one party would receive it for the rest of their lives. And it, it generally occurred mostly in what we call longer-term marriages, and where one party had stayed at home with the kids presumptively or just stayed home, period, and the other one was the one that went out and was the wage earner. Well, all of a sudden when there's a divorce, the person that stayed home and wasn't making any money usually has a lot less capability of being able to um, pay themselves or, or earn for themselves enough money to sustain themselves at the same lifestyle that they had previously uh, been involved with. And so that's why we used to have or had the concept and still do even as of today, the concept of permanent alimony. This bill would eliminate permanent alimony. It takes it completely out of the statute and instead redefines some of the stuff as it would relate to bridge the gap, uh, rehabilitative, and durational alimony. And I'm going to go into a lot more of those changes after the break, but we would effectively get rid of permanent alimony and go to nothing but bridge the gap, rehabilitative, and durational alimony. You've been listening to Talk Radio 96.7 FM and 1430 AM, and I look forward to going into more of this after the break. Welcome back to the Legal Eagle Show. This is your host, Tony Dodds. We were talking before the break, and let me give you the numbers to call in if you got a question about all this stuff. Uh, the number to call in is 863-682-1430. That's 863-682-1430. To contact me at my office, the number is 863-688-2389. That's 863-688-2389. We were talking about, before the break, the elimination of permanent alimony. Now, the court will then still have the three that we talked about, which is bridge the gap. The whole idea there is is to allow the party that does not make as much as the other one uh, to have a period of time, and it, it cannot exceed a period of more than two years. Um, I, say, I say that. No, I think that's one of the other ones. Never mind. Scratch what I just said on that. Bridge the gap, though, the whole idea behind it is to simply allow one of the parties uh, to have a little bit of period of time to have some extra money coming in because of the earning capabilities of the two parties uh, being, I hate to use the word significantly, but at least different. And so the, the court will allow uh, or order for one to get the other. Um, rehabilitative alimony, we've talked about that before, is to allow a person to have a, a period of time to be able to rehabilitate themselves, meaning going to college, going to trade school, going to uh, whatever they need to training-wise to be able to get themselves to a point to be self-sufficient. 
And then durational sometimes is used, uh, and it can be a longer period of time, and we'll go into that in a minute, to be able to uh, help in sustaining the person for a longer period of time uh, simply because they may need it, simply because they were the ones that did not make as much during the course of the marriage. And part of what the court's looking at on this is not necessarily an equalization of income, but making sure that both parties are trying to be able to sustain a similar standard of living uh, that they might have had while they were still together, understanding both parties are going to have a lower standard of living because it's always, and I say always, I cannot hardly think of any situation where it's cheaper when two people are living in two households as opposed to one household. Uh, If they're both living under the same roof, They've got the same electric bill then. It's a a combined amount, uh, especially if one of them's got kids somewhere else later when they're split. You're you're talking about uh, differences in the ability to sustain two households off of similar income that they were sustaining one household. So that's that's why durational kind of sits out there. The court has to look at a number of factors, and I've gone through most of these things before, such as the duration of the marriage, the age and physical and emotional condition of the parties, the resources of each party, um, including their non-marital and marital assets and liabilities, uh, their earning capacity. I mean, one party may have been working for 20 years at the same job, the other one too. And a lot of times there's a difference in the capacity of that person to uh, earn. The tax consequences of some of these awards, especially on people that Uh, One of them makes a lot of money and the other one does not. The court's got to consider the tax consequences on that. So even the investment income or investments that the parties have can be looked at for purposes of alimony. Getting past that part, um, the person that's awarded alimony under this statute can purchase life insurance on the payor, the person that's paying the alimony, and the payor has to cooperate with uh, being able to get that insurance. In other words, if you were married to somebody and you wanted to divorce them and they were going to be paying you alimony, to ensure that you're going to get that alimony, you can get insurance. But a lot of times those insurance companies who are third parties require the person that's life is being insured to sign off on it saying it's okay. Some people are a little hesitant to do that because once a life insurance policy has been put on somebody, they got a target on their back, so to speak. And I know that sounds kind of hostile. Uh, It sounds negative. Well, guess what? It's a reality check. It happens. And so there would have to be some assurances and everything else, but the whole idea is it's to make sure that the payee, the person that's awarded the alimony, is going to get paid in the long term out of this, uh, whether the person dies or not. Now, if the person doesn't die, that person's just squandered all of those payments on that life insurance to be able to try to guarantee that. Determining alimony itself, um, we're going to talk about short-term, long-term, and maybe a moderate term. By definition, under the old statute, A short-term marriage was a marriage of under seven years. Under this new proposal, it would be an under 10-year period. It's kind of making it a little more simplified and more uniform, because especially when you read or hear the rest of what I'm getting ready to tell you. 
a moderate term marriage is between 10 and 20 years. That means that uh, anywhere from 10 years up to 20 years, that would be considered a moderate term. Long-term marriage is anything over 20 years or longer. Uh, I will use my wife and my example on this. We are coming up on 39 years married later this year. Yes, I'm congratulating myself for being able to make her stay with me, and I say make, uh, somehow entice her to stay with me after all of these years. She's a saint, and I cannot say enough good things about her. Uh, but if if somebody like us was to end up in a divorce situation, the one person who makes more than the other would be considered to be in a long-term marriage for how the court's going to evaluate dealing with alimony and something like this. And under the existing statutes that exist now, permanent alimony would be the award on most cases. Not under this statute because it does away with permanent alimony. Bridge the gap. As I had indicated before, and I sort of corrected myself, I'm going to go back to what I said before. It can't, By statute, it cannot be ordered for more than two years. And the plus side of that, though, is it's also not modifiable during that time frame. Uh, in other words, the court can order it to help somebody kind of kickstart their life over again in a separate situation or a separate lifestyle by ordering Bridge the Gap, but it cannot be ordered for more than a two-year period, and it cannot be modified. Rehabilitative alimony. Under the provisions, it cannot exceed five years, and it, but it can be modified. In other words, if... Uh, Two years into it, the person has completely rehabilitated their situation, and they are now earning a significant income. Uh, say they were going to uh, some school that was a two-year degree, and it, it rehabilitative alimony that had been ordered for five just to ensure they got through. Once they got out of that two-year program and were earning significantly more money, the party paying it could go in and mo and ask the court to modify it to either reduce it or do away with it for the rest of the term. So that's the one that that's one of the ones that has got some impact to it out of this. The biggest one though that's got the impact on it is where they're trying to um, help people for longer periods of time based on the duration of the marriage itself. Uh, and it doesn't necessarily have to have the same analysis. In other words, under rehabilitative alimony, there has to be a plan as to how they plan on rehabilitating themselves. You can't just go in and say, I need to, you know, this, this five years worth of alimony to rehabilitate myself. Well, what are you going to do? I don't know. That doesn't work under that. Under durational, you don't necessarily have to have that. Uh, durational alimony will be ordered in a set period of time, and it terminates upon the death of either party. Uh, it can be modified, but it cannot be awarded on a marriage of three years or less. So basically what they're saying is anybody that's been married three years or less, if one of them makes significantly more than the other one, they're not going to have to pay them any kind of durational alimony. And the, the idea behind that is why would you be paying some kind of long-term duration on something that was such a short-term marriage? Now, on the next 
provision. And again, these are all things that will redefine how we deal with alimony. It's still under durational, uh, but during that period of three years to 10 years of marriage, a durational period of alimony can be awarded, but it cannot exceed 50% of the marriage between that. So I, I believe the way that's going to be interpreted is that if you were married for four years, the most you could get for durational alimony would be for two. If you were married for 10 years, the most you could get it for would be five. And that's it. You're done. No more alimony after that. Uh, there is a provision that allows the court to combine two of these, but I don't think you're going to see that very often. Um, and it would be subject to a lot of new appellate issues. But there is a way where the court could ultimately say, I'm going to give you two years of rehabilitative and three years of durational. There has to be certain findings that have to be made. Uh, I, it's going to, I mean, it may happen, but it's going to cause a lot of problems if somebody does do that. It can be done. It may or may not be done. If uh, the marriage is between 10 and 20 years, the award of alimony cannot exceed 60% of that time period of the marriage. So, as people are married, uh, let's use 20 years itself. You could not award alimony for a durational period of time for more than 12. I mean, it, it literally is that easy to figure out. You take 60% of 20, it's 12 years. You do 60% of 18, it's going to be around 11, something like that. And that's the maximum that it can do. They don't have to do it, but they cannot do any more than that. On a more than 20-year uh, marriage, um, it's it goes to a point of 75%, and I'll talk about that after the break. You've been listening to Talk Radio 96.7 FM and 1430 AM. Welcome back to the Legal Legal Show. This is your host, Tony Dodds. To call in, the number is 863-682-1430. That's 863-682-1430. To contact me at my office, the number is 863-688-2389. That's 863-688-2389. We're talking about at this point, and for just a couple more minutes, and then I want to go into the new, the other part of it, which deals with the timesharing. Oh, we have a caller. Go ahead, caller. Uh, yes, uh, this is James Marmondale. Yes, sir. Uh, I have to admit, I always understood about this, is, you know, for better or for worse, is when you get married, period. And coming from a mom and dad that stayed in bed for 65 years before they passed, and single and never been married before, I mean, I enjoy your program completely, but you're scaring me to the point where I'm afraid to even get married. Oh, well. <laughs> but I'm, I'm, what I'm trying to say is, at the end of your program, could you be encouraged not to <laughs> I don't disagree with you at all. It's a very unfortunate reality, though, that a very large portion of marriages end in divorce. And so what I'm doing is trying to go through that today. And then there's this other section we're going to touch on in a little while, dealing with time sharing with the children. Even if you don't get married but you have kids with somebody, that section is going to be more appropriate even in that part. Uh, oh, it's your job. I really do. Yeah. I mean, you, got, you got a hard job to do to go through people who are going through hard times so i applaud you so well, I, I think appreciate I'm that. To your response and the sad part is i'm gonna to have to brush up on my math skills by the way <laughs> this thing's drafted at this point which is fine 
I'm pretty good with my math skills, and I appreciate you calling in on that. Thank you. Uh, because this is going to require us almost taking a, a chart and trying to figure things out. And again, understanding this is the maximum liability that these folks are going to have that I'm talking about. The courts can always go lesser, which gives us some opportunity to argue lesser. Um, and yeah, I am kind of trying to scare people a little bit because we unfortunately have a lot of people that go out and get married when they probably need to wait a little longer to make sure how they're going to do it and how well it's going to work. Um, I have a lot of people that come into my office and they'll get, they'll be married three or four years and they'll come in. And I can't stand him anymore. Well, maybe you should have thought about that before you married him. So yeah, there is a certain amount of this show that's intended to have the impact of maybe scaring people straight a little bit, kind of like scaring the kids straight when we used to mar- march them through the jails. I want you to understand how financially devastating a divorce can be for both parties. It's not easy on either one of them. Um, going back into a little bit more of the, the finances, and then I'm going to touch a couple other things, and then we're going to hit the the other hot topic that is interesting out of all of this, and that'll be dealing with child timesharing. But if the parties are married for more than 20 years, the maximum time period uh, that the court can order alimony on that would be 75% of whatever that time period is. Assume that they are married for 25 years, and I'm going to, let me make it easier on my brain today, let's say 24 years. The maximum period of time then that the court could order alimony would be for 18 years subsequent. Not on a, they can't do it as a permanent award, which is forever. The maximum term would be 18 years then. And it cannot exceed 35% of the difference between the party's incomes. Assuming one party makes $7,500 a month and the other one makes $2,500. You would take twenty five hundred off of seventy five hundred. The difference is five thousand, and then you multiply that by thirty five percent. And I'm going to do that very quickly in my head and just say that it's somewhere between fifteen hundred and two thousand a month, and that would be what could be awarded uh, as it would relate for purposes of this durational alimony. The next real quick thing to touch on is what do we do when the payor retires? I mean, you can't say that one of them has to work until they drop dead, although that does happen sometimes. But if the person is going to retire or wants to retire that is the payor, they have to file a notice of retirement and an intent to terminate alimony with the court and have it served on the other party. Uh, It needs to be filed one year prior to their planned retirement or that will be calculated in if it is terminated once it gets to a point later on. Now, what happens if you retire before the petition for dissolution is adjudicated? In other words, you're sitting out there and the people are 63, 64 years old. Say we're, for argument's sake, we'll say 65 is the retirement age, although I think 62 is actually a retirement age with Social Security these days. Assume 62. And the parties are 60 years of age now. If that person can kind of delay those divorce proceedings past the age of 62, that would normally be the payer, and goes ahead and, and retires, 
the, uh, he can get, they may be able to avoid paying any kind of alimony or at least the durational alimony, even if it's a long-term marriage. Uh, the party seeking the alimony, the only way you get around that is if the party seeking the alimony is not the age of retirement. So if they're below that, they still might be able to get it for a period of time. And the party seeking the alimony would have to have an income of less than 130% of the federal poverty level guidelines. Folks, I, again, I've got to break up about my math skills a little better. I'm probably going to have to buy a new calculator and, and sit here and chart things out on some of these because it involves a lot more math than we used to have to do. It does take a lot of discretion out of this. It still leaves a tremendous amount, but it takes a lot of the discretion away on, on divorce proceedings as it would relate to alimony. And again, the court's going to be still taking into consideration uh, the division of the assets. Say one party makes $10,000 a month and the other one makes $2,500. But say they have a half a million dollars in assets and it's all liquid. Say it's all in retirement and savings plans. And the court equally distributes those to both parties. In other words, one party that makes the $7,500 has... 250,000 and the other party has 250,000. Then they're going to look at the ages of the folks. If one of, if they're in their 40s it's different than if they're in their 60s. And you can say well that's age discrimination. No, it's the reality of how long they're going to need to sustain themselves uh, once the divorce occurs. And somebody that's in their 60s is probably not absent a car accident or some tragedy not going to live as long as somebody that's in their 40s and therefore need the additional help. So all of this is still going to be very discretionary within the court. It's things that the attorneys will have to deal with. I will tell you that the family law section of the Florida Bar and the Florida Bar itself do not like this and do not support it and have made that very clear. I don't agree with the bar on this one, and I will be the first one to tell you that even though I do discern a portion of my living doing this type of work, quite frankly, this is going to simplify the process to me a little bit. It certainly eliminates a lot of long-term issues that end up in what I would call the War of the Roses, which uh, anybody that's ever seen that movie, or if you haven't, you need to watch it. It, it can cut down on a lot of the volatile issues, especially of a longer-term marriage, uh, in which the parties have a lot of assets and or one of them makes a lot more money than the other. And so I think this may actually help reduce some of the hostilities involved. I may be purely speculating, and a lot of people may not like my opinion on this, that are part of my profession. I really don't care. I'm the one paying for this slot. And so the long and the short of it is, I like this. I think it will help. Uh, some of our judges won't like it because, guess what? It takes away some of their discretion. But it also provides them a lot of guidelines to work with that will help them uh, in formulating the ultimate awards they make if the parties don't reach an agreement. And so that is why I like it. I think it will work. Uh, if it doesn't, and that's why we have appellate courts, too. The appellate courts will have to still sort out some of the stuff concerning this because there are a few things I see a little bit of a gray area or a black hole as it relates to it that will need to be defined better through the court system. But I think that ultimately this will make it a lot simpler on the parties going through the divorce process. 
And when we get after the break here in a minute, now I'm going to hit the thing that a lot of people wanted to hear about, which is timesharing and the changes on it. But it it will simplify things as well. And I say it'll simplify it. It's going to really complicate it for some folks, but simplify it for others. You've been listening to Talk Radio 96.7 FM and 1430 AM. Welcome back to the Legal Legal Show. This is your host, Tony Dodds. I'm an attorney here in Lakeland. To call into the show, the number is 863-682-1430. To contact me at my office, the number is 863-688-2389. That's 863-688-2389. I'm located at 904 South Missouri Avenue in Lakeland. Okay. Drum roll for those people that are waiting to hear about the change on timesharing of children in Florida. And this would apply to dissolution of marriage as well as paternity-type actions. And that would be under Section 61.13. Right now, there was a change a couple of years ago, and I say couple, actually more than a couple, that were to give fathers equal standing when deciding how to deal with timesharing in Florida. But it really didn't say right off the bat all of it's going to be equal. It just said they're to be considered equally. Well, a lot of our judges, and especially if you get out of county over in Hillsborough and uh, Orlando and places like that, they start with a presumption of 50-50 on the timesharing, which means each parent gets 50% of the time. That does not always happen here. Now, we do have several judges here that start kind of with that same uh, presumption, and then we there's a, one or two that sometimes don't. Um, and so the Florida legislature has put it put into this bill that under section 61.13 there would be a presumption of equal time sharing between the parents that the court would start with to begin with meaning that each of the parents would have equal amounts of time with the kids uh, that's a complete change of the thought processes from the 1960s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and even early 2000s, uh, to have something codified where there's actually a presumption under the law that there would be an equalization of the amount of time uh, to be spent by each of the parents. Now, I'm not saying that some of our judges, a lot of our judges really at this point, kind of adhere to that same thought process. There's a few that do not. Yes, caller, go ahead. Hi, um, I was calling, uh, my divorce was finalized on December 17th. The judge ordered um, my spouse that uh, she had to pay the equity on the home in 90 days, which is March 17th. Okay. And she didn't take any action towards getting that accomplished since December. And now she's uh, asked, she said she has bad credit now, and she's asking me for another six months, but... She's living in a five-bedroom house. I'm living in a, in a rented room and waiting for my equity so I can move forward. Okay. okay. What What do I do? Let me ask one question right off the bat that I always ask people that ask stuff like that. Did you have an attorney for that case? I did, yes. Okay. I hate. I, I, I'm going to give a generalized answer in a minute, but I do not have all of the terms of your specific decree in front of me. Um. And I would defer that you go back and talk to your attorney that handled it at the time, uh, simply because, again, without knowing the exact language that's in the final judgment and without knowing more of the overall 
um, spectrum of what was dealt with in that divorce, that's a loaded question for me to try to give an opinion on. If I were to give Oh, a, no, it's simple. The, the settlement was that I get paid $500 a month in alimony till um, June, and then uh, the equity, uh, my balance of equity on the house, was I think it was 15000 yeah, fifteen thousand um, in nine in ninety days from December seventeenth, and we settled in front of the judge. She agreed on it. Okay, uh, but she never took action in trying to get the loan, and now she's saying she has bad credit. It'll and she wants to try to clean it up in six months. Um, you don't have to agree. You do, you do not have to agree to that. Let me interrupt you. That you do not have to agree to that at all because you had an actual. Declaration and the judgment, I'm assuming, and again, I hate assuming anything because we all know what happens when I do that. But assuming the final judgment has all of that in it, mm-hmm. your your remedies are get an attorney, either myself or the attorney that you had at the time, and go back in for a motion for enforcement with the court. And if she cannot okay. live by the agreement that was reached and cannot adhere to it, you would have other remedies available to you, which would include the forced sale of the residence. Okay? Okay. Yeah. And I, I, without more of the particulars of what's actually in it, that's about as far as I can go with an advisory opinion on that. Okay? Sure. All righty. Yeah. Well, if, if I can get the num- your number to contact your office. Okay. Uh, 863-688-2389. Were you able to get that? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for calling thank in. You. I appreciate it. Thank you. Bye-bye. Going back to our time-sharing issue at this point, this will start people off with a definitive position of understanding that both parties are going to come into it with an equalization of time-sharing. Now, there can be reasons for that not to occur. Um, if one of, peop- one of them is... And that's why it's called a presumption. It's not a declaration of it. If one of the parents is using drugs real bad or is living with a child molester or something like that, we're not talking about an equalization of timesharing at that point because there's going to be a reason that the court can delineate to override the statutory presumption. Uh, We've seen a lot of cases in time where uh, one of the parties, either the mother or father, has got a real uh, bad alcohol or drug issue that they're not getting treated. That's going to be a basis to get around the presumption. But this actually does create a statutory presumption uh, that would allow for equal time sharing. Now, one of the interesting things, and sometimes we we see an unequal amount of time sharing now even, where one of the parties lives a great distance away from the other party. Maybe they live, I don't know, uh, let me use Perry, Florida as an example. They live in Perry. Well, that would be very difficult to try to deal with having a child on a 50% time-sharing basis if one of the parties lives in Perry and the other one lives in Lakeland. And so say the person, though, that lived in Perry moves within 50 miles of the existing uh, location of where that time-sharing occurs, meaning uh, where the child would primarily reside, which we'll use Lakeland. So the parent moves from Perry to Plant City. That's within 50 miles. At least last time I checked, it it wasn't 50 miles to go over to Plant City. 
At that point in time, that can be a substantial and material change of circumstances under this statutory provision that would automatically put you back into court uh, to talk about an equalization of timesharing. Uh, that you, you would be it would, creates what's called a presumption of the substantial, material, and unanticipated change in circumstances that normally would have to be proven. Uh, in order to be able to get a change. Now, a lot of people are probably going to be asking the question, okay, can I just automatically go in and back in to modify based on this statutory provision? The answer is no. There's a two-step process to this. This is intended for cases that have not yet been adjudicated, meaning have not already actually gone to court and been finalized. However, it would also apply to a modification if you cross the first hurdle, and that first hurdle is proving a substantial, material, and unanticipated change in circumstances. Let me make that a little simpler and clearer. There's an order already in place that exists concerning timesharing. Uh, it could have been from three years ago, could have been from five years ago, could have been 10 years ago. And all of a sudden, this bill signed, and somebody goes, okay, I want to go change things and have 50% of the time with the child. Okay, you can do that, but you've got to be able to still prove the substantial, uh, material, and unanticipated change in circumstances. This statute does not do that in and of itself, except for if you one of the parents was living 100 miles away, 200 miles away, and moves within 50 miles of where the child is currently designated to live. A lot of people are going to want to know, when does this stuff go into effect? If the governor signs it, and he has not signed it as of before the show starting today, if he signs it, it would have an effective date of July 1. What does that mean? That means any case that is pending, and that's kind of critical, pending or originates after July 1. In other words, if you don't file the case till July 2nd, it would, it would automatically apply. If your case is pending right now, it also would apply after July 1. This could be something that people want to think about. If, if this gets signed, you might want to make sure your final hearing is after July 1 of this year. Uh, and I... I'm not trying to upset a bunch of our judges who are trying to move cases through the system. But once that case has been adjudicated, it's going to be a real problem then because this this doesn't apply to it. Uh, the other provision that's on the books right now, giving fathers equal considerations what's on the books. But this one doesn't apply until July 1, but applies to any case that is pending or would be filed after that time frame. So it is a major change in the provisions, maybe not so much of a change in the thought processes of our existing judiciary, because like I said, a lot of them have kind of been leaning that way anyway, or, or doing it quite a bit already. But this would codify it and actually kind of push the buttons of some of our judiciary that doesn't always do it that way to have to rethink how they're going to apply it. And if they don't rethink it, they're going to find themselves with a lot of opinions going to the appellate courts if they don't make the appropriate findings of fact and conclusions of law that they would have to delineate in their judgments. 
And they're probably going to say, okay, I'm going to start rethinking how I handle some of this. So I hope this has been informative to you as to the changes on the alimony. Again, it's involving a lot more math. The timesharing really applies from a set time period or something that's already existing, but it will also apply in cases in which the court finds that there has been a substantial material change of circumstances for modifications. In other words, the court's going to have to seriously consider uh, the timesharing and the presumption of equal timesharing at that point based on the statutory provision. It's been a pleasure talking to you today, and I look forward to talking to you the next time I'm going to be before you, which will probably not be next week. I'm on vacation. But, and we may don't, we really don't know about the following week, but either way, there will be a show of mine on, probably one that you may or may not have heard already. Look forward to being before you again another time. You've been listening to Talk Radio 96.7 FM and 1430 AM.